What we've seen over and over again with a wide variety of conditions is the cleaner your diet, the more your diet is plant-based, the better off you're going to be. If you get infected, your course is likely to be much more benign or even asymptomatic. When people are on diets that are very high in animal products, they tend to do much worse. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries and healthy cities coast to coast. Alpena, Michigan, Sierra Vista, Arizona, Kalma, Sweden. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 45 of season 5, number 344 overall. Monkeypox. Today is all about teaching you what you should know and what we know so far. Here we are still in the midst of one pandemic and then lo and behold, along comes this little known virus that begins to spread. But unlike the coronavirus, this one isn't exactly novel. It's not new. In fact, the origins of monkeypox trace back nearly 70 years. And we will be getting into where it actually came from and how it's spreading today. And the lessons we can learn from the current COVID-19 pandemic and how they might apply to monkeypox. But most importantly, perhaps, we'll also be talking about how your pre-existing health can help win this war on infection as well. So we're talking about diet and monkeypox. What do we know there? Talking about plant-based diets versus the standard American fast food, high fat diet. And does anything on your plate actually matter in this case? For those answers today, we will be turning to infectious disease expert and virologist, Dr. Sarai Stanzik. She is the current director of medical education at the Physicians Committee, as well as the former chief of infectious disease for the Veterans Administration in Hudson Valley, New York. And joining us will be Dr. Neil Barnard, who has played an integral role in all of our discussions so far on COVID-19. And now he's bringing his expertise to this conversation as well. I am excited that Dr. Barnard is here today because I will be asking him about the origins of monkeypox. And from what I've been able to gather, there are some similarities to this one and how other viruses have been able to jump from wild animals to humans. But we're gonna be really well-rounded on the exam room. We're gonna switch gears as well, do something completely different once we wrap up our discussion on monkeypox, because I will then be welcoming the vegan roadie, Dustin Harder, back to the exam room. And man, has he ever been busy since the last time he was on the show. He has taken the lead on revamping what we call our Universal Meals program. And we call it Universal Meals because the recipes are designed for literally pretty much everyone to enjoy universally these dishes are free from the top nine food allergies the nine most common food allergies out there so we're talking about gluten and peanuts and tree nuts and eggs and dairy every single one of the top nine you will not find in any of these universal meals recipes so if food allergies are a challenge in your house you will definitely want to stay tuned for that but let's go ahead and kick everything off right now with our discussion on monkeypox and how your diet may play a role and what you need to know right now about this emerging threat. Thank you both so very much for being here. Good to see you, Chuck. Good to see you, Chuck. Thank you so much for inviting us to speak on this important topic. It is an important topic, and it seems like no matter where you turn right now, you're seeing headlines, Dr. Stancic, about monkeypox. And I think that before we begin our discussion about what it really is, let's talk about where it has come from. What do we know about the origins right now of monkeypox? Right. 
Well, we know a bit. Um, it was first described in 1958 uh, in uh, monkeys, ill monkeys that had been imported from Singapore to Denmark to a research facility. So that was the first recognition of the virus. But it wasn't until 12 years later in 1970 where we saw the first case in a nine-year-old boy in Central Africa. Now, since that uh, diagnosis back in 1970, we've seen sporadic cases, and, and this is a, uh, an infection that is endemic to Western and Central Africa. Um, it wasn't until 2003 where we had a large outbreak here in the United States, and we can talk a little bit more about that. But before I do that, I just want to explain what monkeypox is. It is a relative of smallpox, which you're probably very familiar with. Fortunately, it's less contagious and less deadly than smallpox. Now, smallpox um, is has was eradicated uh, from the globe in 1980 when the World Health Organization um, uh, called this eradication, which was an extraordinary moment in our history because it is the only human infectious diseases which we've been able to arrive at that designation. Uh, now, the monkeypox. Um, outbreak, as I described earlier, the one that occurred in 2003, occurred in the Midwest United States when some uh, rodents were imported into uh, into the Illinois area, and then they were cohabitants with prairie dogs that then were sold as pets. In that outbreak, we had about 50 individuals that were infected with the virus. There were no deaths, but it was limited. We now have had um, in, in this current outbreak, about a thousand uh, individuals that have been infected over 29 countries. And in the United States, we have about 12 states currently that have at least one case. Okay. So I, I hear those numbers and um, they really do pale in comparison to the numbers we're seeing with the COVID-19 pandemic, what we've seen over the past almost three years now. Um, given that, Dr. Stanzik, how concerned should we be right now about monkeypox? I think we need to be aware and we need to be following this very, very carefully. I think concern, um, uh, it, we should have some, but I, I don't think it's, uh, we don't believe at this point that this is something that will elevate to the level of pandemic. I think it's important for us to understand how this virus is transmitted, what we can do to prevent and we do have, unlike COVID-19, this is a virus that we're, we're familiar with, that we understand. Again, it's been around since 1958. We have a vaccine available to us. We have immunoglobulin. We have antivirals to use in these settings. Fortunately, as I said previously, we have not had deaths. We, it doesn't appear that we have severe disease. It, it is primarily self-limited and patients are, are doing relatively well. But it's important for us to be aware so that when we see cases that we can isolate them and manage them appropriately and reduce risk of transmission. Dr. Barnard, I, I wanna come to you now because here we have an instance where uh, we have a virus that originated in an animal and it jumped to a human being. And then more recently with COVID-19, that's exactly how the pandemic began. Began very likely in a wet market in China, wild animals being exposed, being kept in very close quarters to each other, but then humans coming into contact with them, lo and behold, what happens? The virus jumps from animal to human. It seems to me like now we have this, this case again here with the monkeypox, and this is going to continue to happen. So can you talk to us about kind of the dangers of, of what's happening as far as these viruses being able to jump from these wild animals to humans, and then we just see them spread like wildfire. This has been a theme that we have seen uh, over and over and over again, and public health experts are always warning that you don't want to be having contact with wild animals. You don't want to bring them into your markets or your grocery stores, or for, for that matter, your laboratories or your pet stores or that kind of thing, for exactly the reason that you gave, Chuck is that they carry their own kinds, their own viruses. And normally humans and these animals wouldn't interact at all. Uh, but as Dr. Stancic was saying, okay, you bring home a cute pet prairie dog, which people would normally not have in their, their home. And if the animals are then carrying in viruses, they can leap across the species um, divide. Where this was really um, dramatically observed was in 1918, uh, the H1N1 so-called Spanish flu uh, killed, what, 50 million people. And this flu is uh, from a virus, 
a virus that's in wild birds. And so the wild birds can park in your flock of ducks or chickens or whomever. The wild birds can transmit the virus to them, and then they transmit it to the people keeping the birds and then to their uh, family and their social contacts and so forth. And, and that was a, a particularly deadly pandemic, uh, much deadlier than, than COVID-19, uh, because it was totally novel. It was uh, something to which humans really didn't have any uh, immunity at all. But Chuck, it, it gets worse than this. It's not just that the animals introduced new viruses to us, but once the influenza virus was introduced into human beings, it never left. Um, so we've had influenza ever since, but then new strains come in because a new bird virus uh, in 1957, again in 1968, new bird viruses then came and mingled their, their DNA with the existing viruses. And suddenly you've got a totally immunologically new virus that the human immune system can't really deal with. And then you see a lot more deaths. And it's kind of what we're seeing now with COVID-19, where you have the mutating viruses uh, constantly and challenging our immune system. The moral of the story is we've seen this over and over and over again. In 2015, the CDC went into a Minnesota uh, market, basically. They looked at, at live pigs that were being sold. And they found that 86% of them had influenza viruses and they could, could pass them to human beings. We see it over and over and over again. Uh, note to self, leave the animals alone. Okay. So let, let me, let's, let's digest this. I don't think that this is something that the typical person who will be shopping in a, in a market such as that with all of these live pigs is really kind of cognizant of. And that is that, yeah, the animal that they're there interacting with can pass the virus right on to them. And it seems like this is, well, it doesn't seem like it is a fact now that that is another instance of that. So, I mean, it, it seems like it would be really simple just to say, Dr. Barnard, well, let's, you know, shut down all of these markets. Let's end all of these, these laboratory tests. But like, what are some actionable steps do you think somebody can take right now? Who's watching this, who's hearing this podcast, what's something that they can do to say, Hey, you know, we really got to make some differences and move the needle in, in a healthier direction here. Um, there, there are steps we could take. But first, I should say it's actually a two way street, uh, because when the coronaviruses came in, as you said, it was a bat virus. And whether people believe it came from a wet market or came from a laboratory, in either case, they were using bats um, and the bat virus leapt into human beings. But once the COVID-19 virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus was in human beings, humans could then pass it back to animals. And you might remember November 2020 um, in Scandinavia, mink farms started to show the mink had COVID-19, the, the COVID-19 virus. Where did they get it? They got it from people. And so it goes back across the species divide. It will then mutate further. And th the more humans and wild animals interact, the more you get this cauldron effect of viruses that can change. But you asked about um, actionable steps. Um, to tell you the truth, I wish that our governments had the courage to do what they need to do. There are live animal markets now that have chickens, ducks, other animals kept alive. Um, these are perfect viral vectors. Um, and it's, in fact, as soon as, as COVID-19 emerged, Tony Fauci said, one of the things we really need to do is close down those live markets. They're still operating. Um, there's many, many of them in New York, and you and I have talked about that before. Um, those need to close down. It helps obviously if people don't uh, frequent those places. If they if they don't uh, if they're not customers of those places, animals should not be used in laboratories. Obviously, for many reasons we've discussed, but it's a terribly dangerous thing to bring in um, wild monkeys or, or uh, other animals and have them at close quarters with your lab techs and and other people. Um, wild animals do not make suitable companions, uh, so we shouldn't be bringing them in our homes in that way. Um, and people think of a mink coat as, as if it comes from um, a store. Well, it came from live animals, and that's where we see these, these kinds of interactions there. So the theme is leave the animals alone. And then the related theme is that when people have gotten COVID-19, they inhale it, which can happen despite the best of precautions. Those people who have been avoiding eating animals actually have the best immunity, as we've discussed as well. So um, th this theme does come up over and over again about leaving the animals alone. 
Yeah, Dr. Stancic, that's a great transition over to you for this next question. And that is very early on in the COVID pandemic, we heard about the healthier the person is, the less likely they are to become severely ill. And even speaking with Dr. Uh, Andrew Chan from Harvard yesterday, he and I were talking about a study that uh, he co-authored of more than 600,000 people that looked at the quality of the diet and the natural immunity a person had to COVID-19. And just as Dr. Barnard said, the healthier that person was, um, the more they gravitated toward a plant-based diet, the more immunity they seemed to have. Obviously, we're very early on in this latest outbreak of monkeypox, but what do we know in terms of you know, uh, how many comorbidities a person may have and their risk of becoming ill with monkeypox? Yeah, that's a great question, Chuck. We don't know, we don't have that much information. We do know that children tend to have more severe disease, and those that are considered immunocompromised are also more more likely to have um, more significant severe disease. And let me ask you the the numbers that we have today, as we record this, hovering right around one thousand cases or so. Yes. Um, the incubation period is what I, I believe it's up to two weeks. Is that accurate? It can be as short as five and as long as 21 days. On average, it's seven to 14 days. And so during that period, uh, the patient is asymptomatic. Then when symptoms occur, they typically begin with high fever, chills, muscle aches, so like a flu-like illness. And patients develop adenopathy, so swollen lymph nodes. About two to three days after that prodromal period, patients will develop the rash. And it's really interesting because the rash sort of um, goes through stages. At first, it's what we call macules, so just flat lesions, and then papules, which are raised lesions. And then it evolves into vesicular, so you know, fluid-filled vesicles. And then finally, the last stage is pustular, where you have essentially yellow or pustule pus-like fluid within the vesicle, and then there's crusting. Now, it's important to note that during that entire period, the patient is highly infectious, so they should be isolated during that time. Infectivity ends once the lesion is crusted and, and new skin grows over that. Until that time, the patient should be isolated. And and remind us again, how long does that that once a person starts experiencing symptoms, I mean, does that take a week to run its course, two weeks, a month? Do we know how long that is? Or it's does about it two to four weeks, about okay. two to four weeks. That seems like a, a pretty rough uh, half of a month or, or, or full month for the patient. I, I would think that, you know, it's hard enough to isolate with COVID-19, but then if you're dealing with all of these other things you were just describing as far as the symptoms that present with this, uh, that would be really, really difficult for one person to manage. And so, I mean, you're going to want to basically, I would think, do whatever it is in your power to make sure that that does not come into your household. Absolutely. And the most important thing we can do to prevent the infection is to avoid infected animals, for sure, and then identify as early as possible anyone who's been exposed to monkeypox to ensure that we isolate, that we vaccinate. Uh, because again, if we vaccinate within four days of the exposure, you can prevent the disease from occurring. And even if you vaccinate later, up to 14 days into the exposure, you could at least prevent severe disease. Dr. Stancic, initially with the HIV AIDS epidemic in the 1980s, it was initially believed to be a disease that was passed exclusively among the gay community. Obviously, that proved to be 100% incorrect, but in the case of monkeypox, we're also beginning to see clusters of cases among gay men. Is it safe to say that this too is not a disease that is exclusive to the gay community? It is, it is not limited to the homosexual community. There has been uh, in the media uh, information that tells us that there had been a cluster, as you pointed out, in men who have sex with men. This is not a sexually transmitted disease uh, as the way we understand it. This is a disease that uh, is spread through close contact. So it may be that there, there is a setting or an example here where there, were, where there was transmission um, in, in this community, but everyone is equally susceptible. If you're in contact with someone, it has nothing to do with um, being homosexual or that it's a sexually transmitted disease. This is a close contact um, transmission and everyone is equally susceptible. 
And Dr. Barnard, final question goes to you. We've kind of, you know, gathered this answer in drips and drabs throughout the course of the conversation, but I'd like to ask you directly in terms of the benefit of eating a plant-based diet here, what would those benefits be in terms of mitigating somebody's risk for monkeypox? Well, what we've seen over and over again um, with a wide variety of conditions, not just COVID-19, we also have seen it with influenza and even response to uh, the influenza vaccine is the cleaner your diet, the more your diet is plant-based, the better off you're gonna be. When I say better off, I mean that if you get infected, um, your course is likely to be much more benign or even asymptomatic. Um, when people are on diets that are very high in animal products, they tend to do much worse. Um, and obviously the sequelae of a bad diet, obesity, that makes the infections worse. Um, and also it makes vaccines less effective hypertension, uh, diabetes, all the things that come from a really bad diet, they make the susceptibility to a severe case uh, much, much higher, unfortunately. Um, and, and I want to underscore something that, that Dr. Stancic was saying earlier. You know, there have been no deaths so far, but let's be clear, monkeypox is not a picnic. Um, it's a really rough disease to have. And right now it's very much in the early stages. We all have our headlights on looking to see where is this gonna go? And for now, we just don't know. It's very early stages. Hopefully it'll be contained. Uh, people who develop it, as Dr. Sansik says, can get treatment and they're gonna survive. Uh, but it's, we're all just waiting to see where this disease process goes. Any final thoughts, Dr. Stancic? No, I fully agree. I think right now uh, it's premature to to, and, and it's important for us to to keep our headlights on and 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 watch this as it as it evolves. But just as we do um, with COVID nineteen recommendations, practicing good infection control measures like hand washing um, are incredibly important now, uh, just as they were previously. We heard about the first known instance of this virus tracing all the way back to a lab where monkeys were being kept in 1958. And longtime listeners of the exam room know that while our primary focus is on nutrition education, we also have an army working tirelessly behind the scenes at the Physicians Committee to end animal testing in labs and saving those helpless lives and preventing cruel and absolutely unnecessary suffering. But this army and those animals, they need your support so that we can keep up this work. So please give what you can right now at pcrm.org slash donate. That is pcrm.org slash donate. Or you can click the link in the episode notes to lend your support. Join in the fight. The fight for their lives and your health. Now, Dr. Stancic is one of the feature presenters at this year's International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. That's coming up August 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C. She actually has two big presentations, one where she'll be paired with my friend, Dr. Monica Agarwal, as well as our very own Dr. Hanna Kaliova. And the other, I really love this one. The other one is what every doctor needs to know about nutrition. So critical. And that presentation will be the morning of August 20th. Also presenting Dr. Neil Barnard. He will be there, as will renowned cardiologist Dr. Kim Williams. He will also be receiving an award. So he's doing the double dip. He's going to be honored and he will be presenting. Dr. Dean Ornish will also be presenting, as will Dr. Andy Chan. He's going to be going more in depth on the findings that he and his team discovered during his study on diet quality and the risk of COVID-19. We just had him on the show recently. And Dr. Jim Loomis, who was also just on the exam room, he will also be presenting on ways doctors can get their patients off of diabetes medication by reversing diabetes using diet and lifestyle changes. Dr. Vanita Rahman, she will be presenting on thyroid health. We also have a number of presentations on soy. And Dr. Gemma Newman, 
has a fantastic presentation on hormones and women and how hormonal health can be improved by making diet and lifestyle changes. And yes, that diet we're talking about is in fact a plant-based diet. So 30 speakers over the course of three days, such a fantastic immersion into the world of health. And we would love to see you there, but space is limited. So reserve your seat right now, pcrm.org slash ICNM. That is pcrm.org slash ICNM. CME credits are available for those who need them and scholarships are available for nurses and dietitians. So pcrm.org slash ICNM for all of that information and to reserve your seat. Do hope to see you there because throughout the course of the three days, we will also be recording so many episodes of the exam room. Would love to have you join us right there for a live taping. PCRM.org slash ICNM August 18th through the 20th right here in Washington, D.C. Let's switch gears now and talk about food allergies. Did you know that about two children in every classroom in America have a food allergy? That's a big problem, so much so that the CDC considers it to be a growing public health concern. And it seems that food allergies may affect more and more and more of us as we get older. Check this out. A 2019 study of more than 40,000 adults found that nearly 11% of them had food allergies. And of those, more than half said that that allergy didn't exist until they became an adult. Perhaps more concerning, 38% reported having to go to the emergency room because of a reaction to one of those food allergies. So right now, that is about 32 million people in the United States alone that are suffering with food allergies. And it's not just a burden for those 32 million. No, it's a challenge for everyone who is in their orbit as well. When you're talking about crafting a dinner menu, that can be a nightmare because we want something that's both tasty and safe. Is that even possible? Well, of course it is. You bet it is. And the man stepping up to tackle that 32 million strong challenge is the vegan roadie, Dustin Harder. He has been incredibly busy at work leading our Universal Meals program, creating recipes that are free from the top nine food allergies. And Dustin wouldn't be Dustin if all of these recipes weren't as scrumptious as they are safe to eat. So how did he do it? Well, let's find out. Get some recipe ideas as well. Let's dial into his kitchen right now and have a conversation with the vegan roadie. Dustin, thanks for being here, my man. Thanks for having me, Chuck. It's good to see you. Universal Meals is the perfect name for this project. Before we get into that, what are the top allergens when it comes to food? Yeah, so top nine allergens, we have milk, eggs, peanuts, tree nuts, fish, uh, crustacean fish, uh, shellfish, wheat, soy, and also sesame has just been added. So that takes us to the top nine. Okay, well, that's the top nine. I would venture to say that those top nine, at least one of them, are probably in 99.9% .9 of the recipes yeah. out there. So you're really kind of filling an, a niche here, man. Sure, yeah, especially soy. Soy pops up everywhere, and some people have soy sensitivities. So it's something we've been looking at as well. How, how difficult was it for you to create these recipes? Uh, this, I mean, being being a chef, right, I would imagine this has been the ultimate challenge. Well, it's that interesting thing. Chefs are always like, oh, no special requests and things like that. And when I started working with PCRM, I sort of latched onto this program because it excited me. The challenge of it excited me. Once upon a time when I went vegan, being vegan excited me and coming up with ways to create uh, my favorite foods and veganize them was exciting. Now it was sort of exciting to say, okay, we're going to make some delicious items that appeal to everyone, but can also create space for everyone at the table. So I got excited about it. Never stand down from a challenge, man. Never stand down <laughs> from a challenge. That's I was surprised I got excited, if I'm being honest. I really thought I was going to 
walk the like look the other way and be like, we have a few and that's fine. But instead, I sort of like latched onto it. Well, look, I mean, here's here's what is most impressive to me is that you've been able to really build out this index of recipes in a very short amount of time. I mean, when you took over, how many recipes were there in, in the Universal Meals program already? We had about 35 on the website. So we had about 35 and then we also had about 25. So we take those smaller ones and then we have a scaled up portion of them as well for institutions to use, hospitals, universities, prisons. So they have a scaled up version they can use as well. And how many do you have today? We have over a hundred now. There you go. So you have yeah. been busy. I want to go ahead and pull up the uh, the website. Um, if you're listening to the podcast, go ahead and uh, hop on universalmeals.org. You can find the website there that has all of the recipes. But I want to just kind of walk people through this right now. You, you see this right here, right up at the top. Tells you about the program. And then, I mean, we're just going to cut right to it, right? Recipes. That's where everybody wants to go. <laughs> so you go here. And you see some of the top ones that you've laid out so magnificently. What I, I mean, I'm looking at this and I'm I'm thinking to myself, well, these are like really, you know, uh, going to be palate pleasers. You you got a little bit of everything. You've got Thai food at the top. I see you've got uh, Mexican food there. You've got you know some desserts there. You've got really a little bit of everything. Southwestern. You've got a little bit of everything for everybody in here, and. When I say for everybody, because it's a universal meal, it really is for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. That was sort of, that's the goal behind this. It's a cool program that Dr. Barnard created a couple of years ago, actually. And the idea was to help institutions serve anyone, regardless of uh, cultural backgrounds or religious practices. But then we go to dietary restrictions or parameters that anyone's under or just diets that they're trying to follow, whether it's eliminating soy, you know, that's a big one. Some people don't want to eat a lot of soy uh, or they have to do it for health reasons, right? So it really is making a place for everyone at the table. It's not just about the allergies, but it might be some sort of personal decision somebody is making as well. And now, instead of ordering food or asking you know, a server or being somewhere and saying, it has to be this or that, can you eliminate this or do that? You can just look at something if it's a universal meal and know that it sort of has you covered. So the goal is to start getting this out there to places, home cooks, but as well, you know, places as well, institutions and even restaurants, eventually we hope. How much interest has there been with institutions, uh, you know, higher education? I know that you've already been working with at least one university on this, right? Sure. Yeah, we, we uh, Miami University has been at the forefront of it, sort of leading the way. And they, they present a lot of recipes on their menus. But uh, we've worked with Notre Dame as well. We've had some great success at Notre Dame. We're actually doing an event at Dartmouth on May 11th. And they're doing an entire Universal Meals takeover. So it sort of depends on the teams there and the chefs and who's excited. But like the chef at Dartmouth has created a bunch of his own universal meals recipes that he's showcasing that day. And I'm going to be there doing some of our recipes. We've got a Brussels and black beans taco with butternut queso and sunflower sour cream on there that I'm going to be serving up that day. So um, the interest is big, but it all comes down to what is serviceable, right? What What is easy for institutions to sort of put together? There's always the question of staffing at institutions and how we train the staffs and how we approach it is a big portion of that as well. And that also brings cost into the equation. And yeah. so now I'm thinking, okay, so we're, we're making a very specific type of menu. Does that really escalate the cost to produce this type of food? Interesting to bring that up because one of the fun things in this, Dr. Barnard also had this this thought of thrifty uh, thrifty menu items. So what thrifty means is everything that's a thrifty menu item is a dollar or less per serving. And we've noticed when we talk to institutions, we can talk about how delicious the food is and how much everyone's gonna like it and how how universal it actually is. But the minute we say, oh, we've got these recipes that are a dollar or less per serving, their eyes just light up because everyone's trying to save money in the long run. And again, from institutions to the home cook, everybody loves that. So now 
we had six thrifty recipes on the Universal Meals website. Now we have over 50 uh, thrifty recipes on there and we've marked them clearly with a thrifty sticker. So you can see, a little, and that one you pulled up, that crispy smashed potato is a thrifty recipe. So there's a little yellow sticker on there. But aside from the yellow sticker with the recipes all through the website, there is one thrifty section then where we've compiled all of the thrifty recipes so people can go sort of choose from there and know that they're getting something for a dollar or less per serving. And and here is that that recipe here, crispy smashed potatoes with sunflower dill cream. So it's not like you're basically saying, hey, go buy a potato, bake it, eat it plain. There's your thrifty meal. Like this is some seriously gourmet deliciousness, man. Well, it's super easy. This is just boiling some potatoes, smashing them, and then putting them in the broiler to sort of crisp up. And then this uh, cream that's over the top of it is, I think, four ingredients. It's raw sunflower seeds, a little bit of lemon, dill, water, and maybe a pinch of salt. And it's super tasty, full of flavors, fresh because of that dill. So it, it comes off really nice, but it's really simple to pull together. Simplicity I love, and I'm looking at the ingredients because, I mean, they're, they are simplistic. I mean, these are things that most everybody already has in their kitchen, you know, from the, the little drizzle of olive oil, which is optional, uh, optional, sea salt, pepper. I mean, who doesn't have salt and pepper in their kitchen? And then you're saying that the, the dill dressing is also just what, four ingredients. So really, yeah. all you need to do is go out and get these little baby potatoes and a little bit of dill, and you're in business, man. Yeah. Yeah, true. And for every, every people out there who are oil free, you did mention oil, all of the most, I would say probably 90% of these recipes offer the oil free option. And we give the nutritional values for with the oil and without the oil. So people can choose their own path when they're going down that road. Uh, if they want oil, they can have it. If they don't want oil, they can take it out. Uh, and we offer all the swaps for that and everything. So there really are variations here for people to sort of choose their own journey. Yeah, that's great. And I just highlighted there on the screen, the oil free. I mean, you kind of give the uh, the swap there instead of oil. So in this case, just boil them a couple of extra minutes to get uh, get them, broil them, I should say, not boil. It was, you yeah, can't broil, boil or make something yeah. crispy, <laughs> uh, but broil them to make them a little bit crispier and, and you're in business. So I love the fact that uh, you make it so easy for everybody. Dag, oh man, that just looks amazing to me. They're so uh, good, really. Make those this week. They're so good. I love them. They're one of my favorites. Oh, it's it's got to happen. It's got to <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just, it needs to at this point. Um, I guess my question though, if this is a college or university or even a hospital who's looking at this, I mean, I, I'm not really overly familiar with how kitchens and cafeterias work in places like that. Given these recipes are so simple, would you say that they can be prepared with the staff that they already have in place or would this require additional hands on deck? That's exactly what I tried to do in creating these is make them as streamlined as possible. Um, and also with ingredients that people know already and that are easily ordered within their food service system already. So that was a huge goal of this. We talked to hospitals and universities and sort of design these recipes based on those conversations. We compiled hospital menus to see items that they already had that were not plant-based and made those. There's a, uh, universal not so meaty loaf that we have on the uh, website that is like one of my favorites and i'm not even a big meatloaf fan but it took me like three months to get this right because it was suddenly not just a vegan meatloaf but a meatloaf without the top nine allergens so i really had to like go through through some different variations but we had to look at what was popular and that meatloaf popped up on all the hospital menus and for universities, it's pizzas, it's mac and cheese. So there's a couple different, uh, there's a deluxe shells and cheese where the sauce is made of cauliflower and carrots and potatoes. And there's a few different cheese sauce variations. You can make one with butternut squash. Um, and there's one, just one pot made with nutritional yeast and some plant-based milk. So different variations on cheese sauces, they can make, mix that with any pasta, of course. Uh, there's some new flatbread options like a hummus and roasted, uh, vegetable flatbread or a spinach and artichoke flatbread that I love. And that just comes down to really easy to prepare those top ingredients, right? Roasting the vegetables and you can use a pre-prepared hummus or make your own, but then you just have to have the right crust to follow those parameters. And maybe that's, Maybe that's not the goal, right? Maybe this hospital has, or this uh, university has a vegan crust that's not gluten-free. They can still use that recipe on top of that. It, it's not following the gluten-free aspect, but it's still hitting some other points, right? For sure, for sure, man. I, I'm I'm just blown away by this. Do you think that now that you've kind of been doing this for a few months and you've 
maybe you've kind of hit hit your stride, you found your rhythm a little bit, and these recipes are are a little bit easier for you to to create now. Yeah, absolutely. At first, like I said, it was exciting, but it was also a challenge. And now when I think of it, I'm like, oh, we can do X, Y, Z, swap this out and do that. I learned that sunflower seeds are magic, just like cashews are magic. Sunflower seeds became my new cashew in this, uh, making sauces and creams and stuff like that. There is a difference in like cashews emulsify a little better. They, You don't get the water content doesn't separate when it sets uh, necessarily overnight. So if you do make like that sunflower dressing, for example, if you have extra and you set it in the fridge for a few days, you're just gonna have to shake it up before you use it the next time. But that's really like the only difference I found in the two. Um, you're still able to use sunflower seeds sort of as a palette and to create that luscious creamy texture that you're looking for, so it's great. Same kind of deal, you get them raw, you soak them and then you do whatever you're gonna do with them? Yeah, yeah. Good deals. I, I guess like, you know, they sell the the, pre-packaged sunflower seeds that have already been roasted and salted, you probably can't do much with them once they're at that stage already, right? I mean, you can still use them. You're going to get a little extra roasted flavor there and some salt. So you'll cut whatever salt out of the recipe, but it's best to get the purest form that you can, of course, because that's going to leave you with that blank canvas to put flavors on top of. Just like with raw cashews, right? We're always getting the unsalted, unroasted version. Um, I found that Sprouts is a great place for those whole foods. And lots of grocery stores have you just have to find their like you want to get out of the junk food aisle where there's all the salted foods you want to get to sort of the healthy aisle where they've got the raw nuts and everything like that usually they've got the unsalted uh raw uh, sunflower seeds in there as well just a couple more here for you uh i want to go back to the hospital end of things you mm -hmm. know having been a patient in the past in the hospital and looking at the menu it, it's kind of horrifying um, now that I know yes. a little bit more about nutrition, about what's being served. So as you're speaking to the hospitals and, and, you know, not, not just the executives there, but the doctors, right? I mean, do you find that in addition to presenting a pretty cool program that you're kind of turning that light switch on for them as well saying, well, Hey, you know, if somebody's in here because they're sick, we probably shouldn't be giving them a burger and fries and a Coke, right? Absolutely. It's it's interesting as the years progress, the light bulbs are turning on more and more with more people. So it's wonderful to see. I was in a meeting a couple of weeks ago with a hospital and finally somebody on their team just said, well, it's the right thing to do. And I was just like, you're right. It is the right thing to do. But I'm glad you came to that conclusion and you're able to see that, you know, because I want to step into every meeting and just say, hey, this is the right thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, I kind of present what we have and hope that they start to see, oh, this seems like the right thing to do. And they did that. And I think that's happening more and more. We, we always meet resistance. There's still resistance. We're always meeting that. But I find more and more people are more open to it. And I would imagine, though, uh, the the kids on campus who you're interacting with and i assume that when you're on these tours you're giving out samples because i mean what, what's a food talk without a sample right sure sure so, so as you're handing this out and you're explaining the program to the students there i would imagine the majority of them are all in for this completely on board yeah it's cool students uh first of all students love stickers who knew if you take a pile of, they were coming up to our table just going, well, but do you have any stickers? We're like, we have this cool brochure and here's some recipes that I can, but what about stickers? Um, that's like just college, college age kids, yeah, right? Yeah, Asking yeah, yeah. For, but it's wow. cool because you get the stickers and then they put it on their backpack or whatever. And it says, you know, plants only, or, and it, it's a great way to spread the message. Bro, scratch and sniff. If there was ever yeah. a place where a scratch and sniff <laughs> sticker would be appropriate, <laughs> this is it. Oh, that's funny. Delicious. <laughs> Delicious and funny. Um, but yeah, their reaction's really great, especially when, you know, universal universal meals sometimes it's it doesn't have the wider appeal because not everyone has allergies. But when you explain it to them, they start to think, oh, well, my best friend actually is allergic to this, or oh, you know, so-and-so practices this religion. It's been difficult when I'm about to eat with them. And they start their wheels start turning and they say, Oh, we can all eat together. But I have had students who come up to our table and we give them a sample of something and we say oh there's two other things on the menu that in the cafeteria today and i watch them just like they're not used to having that option where they don't have to think about it they're suddenly able to go into the cafeteria and there's options when they've got you know two or three allergies and they're able to just have something on the menu that day they're very excited about it 
No doubt. No doubt. So uh, what what else do you have coming up as as we kind of conclude this here interview? Because I want to go and I want to look at these hundred recipes plus that are now up on the website, man. I'm I'm stoked for this. So what's what's next for Universal Meals? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a couple of my other favorite recipes. There's the better than takeout uh, sweet and sour cauliflower, which I love. It's all done in a pan. Uh, there's a one pot stroganoff that I mushroom stroganoff that I absolutely adore. And there's also a eat your veggies bolognese. That is so tasty. You know, people usually go with the lentil bolognese. This one is a mixture of vegetables to create that texture and that delicious hearty bite. So, so good. So just a few other ones to throw out there. But what's coming up for Universal Meals? We're working on a Universal Meals University tour uh, in the fall. So October is Vegetarian Awareness Month and November is Vegan Awareness Month. So we're getting some dates on the calendar. Hopefully do some morning TV shows when we're in those areas with those universities. And then do some uh, pop-ups in cafeterias and feed students and feed the staff and educate the staff so they can get excited about it as well. Yeah, you got me excited, man. You got me excited in 17 minutes and 45 seconds. And now it's lunchtime, my friend. All right. So uh, universalmeals.org is the website to go to for all of these amazing, delicious recipes. And if you are uh, somebody who can get in the ear of a university or a hospital, what's the best way to contact you to get the ball rolling there? Gosh, I think we have a general nutrition email address, but I'm just going to give mine. My name's Dustin Harder, so it's dharder at pcrm.org. You can reach out to me there. And if you have a university or a hospital or anyone you think might be interested in these items, by all means, reach out to me and I'll reach out or we'll get the appropriate person to reach out. Or if we have a contact there, maybe we already have a contact at a place you have in mind. Uh, We'll get the ball rolling with them and see where we can take universal meals with them. And I want to stress too that We are trying, of course, to get this in institutions, but I think it's very important that people understand that the recipes currently up there, those hundred recipes, they're available for the home cook. And we want you to have these at home. We want you to be able to make them for your friends and family. I know that it's very stressful when you're planning a brunch with, you know, six or eight people and you've got that one person who's got an allergy. There's things on here where you can make a couple items and everyone can eat it. It's all inclusive. And it's it's a it's a, it creates a great dining experience for everyone. It takes the stress off of your planning as well. So <laughs> these recipes are for the home cook just as much as they are for the institution. All right, now I'm going to put the better than takeout sweet and sour cauliflower up on the screen before we uh, wrap up here today. Yeah. Uh, this looks incredible. Um, I mean, it really does. It looks like something that you would just go right to your local Chinese restaurant and order. But here is a much, much, much healthier version of it. Uh, how long does it take to put this thing together here? Gosh, that one less than a half hour. Everything's in one pan. Wow. Yeah, wow. everything's in one pan. You're not frying anything. You know, normally with sweet and sour, you're going to have fried pieces of this and that, but you're not missing the fried with this because all the vegetables, the flavor comes through. You're not blocking it with any of that fried oily business. There's a little bit of oil in this if you want it to saute your vegetables, but it's not necessary. And then the sauce comes together. Normally it's like a heavy sugary laden sauce. This one we use pineapple juice, one of the sweeter and more sugary of the fruits, but instead of using sugar, we're using some pineapple juice. So we still get that sweet and sour taste in there. And I just want to highlight this. So the this is the oil-free nutritional info here. You're talking about 103 calories per serving and just one gram of fat. So you think about that, and then you think about how different that nutritional uh, menu would, would be if you ordered it uh, from a Chinese restaurant. I mean, you are talking about <laughs> a significant cost savings and a significant savings with your health as well. This is just fantastic. A plus work, Dustin. A Thank plus, you so brother. much. Thank you. I never even thought about that. Listeners, if you're not watching this, I just covered my face when he compared the new, when you brought up the comparison of the nutrition uh, profile, I was like, oh my gosh, in a restaurant, it would just be like, leaps and bounds to a different world with those nutritional numbers. No question. Astronomical. I would say at least by a multiple of four. And that's with the oil recipe that you have here, which is that little bit. I would say at least a multiple of four here. Just unbelievable, man. Healthy, delicious, good for literally everybody. Yeah. Thank you so very much for all of your phenomenal work and, and keep it up, my friend. Thank you so much. So great to be here today, Chuck. Good to see you. know, I cannot 
wait to give these recipes a taste test at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine coming up in August. And you can join me for that taste test. Get your taste test on too, but you have to save your spot today because space is limited. PCRM.org slash ICNM or click the link right now in the episode notes. And if you are in the market for a good plant-based physician or dietitian, the Barnard Medical Center could be just what the doctor ordered. Telemedicine visits are available for a large part of the country, so schedule your appointment today at barnardmedical.org. That's Barnard Medical for a full list of states where services are available and schedule your appointment to begin your healthier future today. Barnardmedical.org or click the link in the episode notes. Insurance is accepted. So that was kind of a hodgepodge of a show today, but pretty fascinating overall, huh? Monkeypox and food allergies, both presented from the plant-based health perspective. Fascinating conversation. So if you feel like you have raised your health IQ by a point or two, please subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcast or Spotify, wherever you get your shows. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating because it really does help us get this important and interesting information out to people so that they can improve their own health. A lot of times when they feel like they are at rock bottom, facing the most dire of circumstances and don't know a way out, let's help them find that way out. You can help them right now by subscribing to the exam room by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcast or Spotify and leaving that five-star rating. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to my incredible trio of guests for helping to raise our health IQs, Drs. Neil Barnard and Sarai Stancic, as well as the vegan roadie, Dustin Harder. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. Plant-based.